0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Rachel Seaford. Uh, hi Rachel, welcome to the show. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Well, Rachel has published four novels, A Boy in Winter, The Dark Room, Afterwards and The Walk Home and one collection of short stories, Field Study. Her novels have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the Dublin Impact Award and long listed three times for the Women's Prize for Fiction, most recently in 2018 her short story fury is included in Fury's stories of the wild wicked and untamed an anthology of feminist tales by 15 best selling award winning writers which was published by virago earlier this year i feel like the title of your story um along with virago of course were probably two of the most desired kind of uh, in the in the collection um so was it Putluck, potluck or did you manage to request it in advance
1: um i requested it and i didn't know that the the collection was going to be called Furies, actually. Oh, okay. Um, I think it was maybe that was a sort of a a title that was possible.
0: Hmm.
1: So I knew that that was, uh, you know, for the whole collection. And so I knew that that was also a possible title for the story. But I already had the story in mind. Um, I just, I knew about this incident. It's based on a historical incident and I knew about it already. Um, And I just really wanted to write, you know, a character to to be the person who instigated this event. Um, and, uh, And so Fury was just perfect. So when I was approached by Virago, I said, oh, can I have Fury if it's still available? And it was.
0: Perfect. Well, I was going to ask you a bit about that, because um, I found the sort of historical note at the end of the story very moving, I think particularly because as I was reading it, I kept thinking, gosh, I wonder if this actually happened. I wonder if some kind of, you know, incident like this was was based on fact. And then you explain at the end that, yes, it it was based on a real life incident in Poland involving a group of Jewish women during the Second World War. Um, I don't want to kind of give everything away if some of our listeners haven't read it yet, but the book has been out for a little bit. So hopefully some of them have. Um, But when did you first come across the details? of of what happened and what was it that sort of made you think that this you want you mentioned just now you wanted to kind of write about it from one of the kind of instigating women's point of view can you tell me a little bit about that um yeah so I'm um this this is for a book that I'm working
1: on after the book that I'm currently working on Ah. I have a a (laughs) Two book deal with Virago at the moment. I'm just finishing a novel, and then the next book will be a collection of short stories or a story cycle, is what I'm calling it. So the Mm. the stories are all um, either the characters cross over or the um, the themes cross over, and it's it's done in chronological order over across the Third Reich. And um, I'm particularly interested in German Jewish perspectives, but Jewish perspectives, um, you know, you know more generally Mm. of that time and and particularly in what uh you know the the material of everyday life under the nazis whether they mm. whether that you were in germany or whether you were in one of the occupied territories like poland and and particularly stories of survival and stories of resistance and yeah. how you know i don't just mean survival in its literal sense as in i didn't get shot or i didn't get gassed um, but how you survive the day to day of uh, of a regime like that and of a of a hate like that that lasts for so long. I mean, wow. German Jewish um, uh, people had to survive for twelve years of it. You know, as well as literally um, coming out alive, they had to endure those twelve years. Um, and I think also I was I was very interested in finding stories of resistance because so little is known about that still in the public imagination although there's been a lot of historical research about it mm-hmm. i think in the popular imagination jewish people went like lambs to the slaughter still i mean it's right. still a, something that you hear people say um and question and wonder and so there's a there's a sense of um inevitability if you look at it like that, there's a sense of inevitability about the Holocaust, and it was never inevitable. And then I came across, it was a, a book published by Virago called In the Light of Days, and it's stories of Jewish resistance, particularly Jewish female resistance, and um, by Judy Battalion, who's a New York uh, historian. And um, and this incident was one that stuck out. I mean, there are so many in that mm. book. Um, it's really, it, I highly recommend it if you want to feel hope in dark times um and uh, you know they're just it, stories of incredible endurance and bravery and um intelligence actually just fierce intelligence and then this this particular incident um which happened in uh, Poland in 1942 was a group of women who um who tried standing up to uh, to the Nazis when they came potentially to t- take them away, but potentially mm-hmm. also just to bully yeah um and there was a lot of that sort of intimidation it was a huge part of of how the Nazis operated and how they demoralized and um shook people up uh so that they would be cowed when they were eventually um when when the Nazis eventually came to take them away, they would be cowed and they would be frightened um it took quite a lot. To beat people down like that, but that's how they operated. And this was an incident in which um, a few women stood up, and I was just really interested in exploring how that might happen within a person. So I took, I invented a character called Esther, mm. um, and many of the things that she does, most of the things that she does, actually in the book, are all taken from uh, the testimonies of the women that uh, Judy Battalion.
0: Oh, details wow. in
1: her book so there's okay. lots of historical details that are true so um for example i talk about people putting self, uh, acid in light bulbs for example to cause fires and yes uh, people did that amazing so they they caused uh, fires in nazi administrative buildings uh, by using light bulbs with acid in them as fire bombs incredible clever. yeah um and um they, and also there's uh some Polish partisans or people allied to the partisans captured a fighter pilot um when he crashed in the in the reed beds where they were working. And so that also forms part of the of the story. So all these all of the little incidents in it, as well as the main one, um, are taken from those testimonies and I sort of wove them all together um around this character who I invented called Esther.
0: Sounds like I, I can't wait to read more. Sounds really fascinating. Um, I'm interested because you sort of throughout your writing career, you've circled this kind of particular period of history. Um, and obviously it draws you back over and over again. And I'm very intrigued by this idea you, you talk about, you know, you want to uncover the reality of life during these kind of years. You want to uncover these stories of resilience. Are you finding that there's always kind of more to excavate there's always more stories to tell there are always more angles that can be looked at of a period of history that I think a lot of us might assume that we already know quite well
1: uh, yes I mean there is always more to excavate um it's very interesting because it is a period as you say that uh, we feel we know very well yeah um but um I think what we know is uh we know the camps that's yeah. been uh that was almost the first place that historians went to, after—not um, I don't mean literally, you know—metaphorically <laughs> <laughs> after the um, after the war was over, and um, and those were the first uh, testimonies that came out. I guess with camp survivors. I mean, it's, that's the sort of deep horror, isn't it? That sort of mechanized yeah. killing, um, and that whole system yeah I mean I guess definitely. it's impossible
0: it's so horrible you can't that's obviously where you start right exactly. the very peak of it
1: exactly um but uh what we uh, and when I was first wrote my first book um the dark room that was what I knew about but then uh, the historian so that was you know around 2000 2001 but mm-hmm. historians had already moved um away from Uh, the camps although people are always still working on it obviously um but the camps had become less of a focus or and the um the holocaust in the eastern territories that happened in the villages and the towns and the shtetls and so on that had become much more of a focus for historians so when i was writing that book um i uncovered uh you know things in my readings that i hadn't known about um about the massacres that happened, you know, the, that were not mechanized killings, but literally mm-hmm. bullets in the backs of heads, over and over and over again. And this is this became known as the Holocaust by bullets. So first, the historians looked at the camps. Then the historians moved to looking at the Holocaust by bullets on the in the eastern territories. And now, uh, what? I'm, and now there is much more sort of talk about Jewish resistance, for example. Mm. That's, that's a more recent wave. And also, um, there is a lot more research now on the death marches. So what we, the images, for example, that we know of, um, Belsen liberated, you know, this, the terrible images of, um, skeletal bodies piled up, um, those were actually um, a lot of the time, those images were the consequences of the death marches. So the camps were awful, obviously mm-hmm. all the way through they were awful, but they became particularly grisly, and um, those images of cruelty are actually the consequence of the forced marches that many uh, camp inmates had to endure. At the end, when the fronts were closing, yeah. particularly from the east when the Russians were coming, um, the the Germans emptied. Camps. And of course, there were, there were vast networks of these places. Mm. Um, and uh, they emptied them and tried to bring the, for- the people that they were using as forced labour uh, back into what was old Germany, the old Reich borders. Um, and of course, this resulted in
0: huge
1: losses of life and um, terrible conditions for people to endure. And um, so what we, our popular image of the camps is actually very much informed by these death marches, which we didn't know, really. Mm. You know, not those of us lay persons who are not historians, we didn't know this um, until the last 10 years or so when this has been really focused on by historians. So it's, you know, the the, the our knowledge is constantly, um, you know, historians know loads Mm. they look and then it trickles out and one of the ways that it trickles out to the general public is via fiction and so I'm very interested in being one of those people that helps it um spread into the popular imagination and to the popular understanding in particular
0: Mm. and this uh, these sort of stories of um of resistance and you know standing up to it I imagine they are Uh, I don't know, I imagine as somebody who's kind of, you know, been in this world for a long time and immersed themselves in it and and read a lot about it and knows a lot about it, there must be a sort of, like you say, a real kind of element of hope at the end of a terrible sort of dark tunnel. Does it feel like that when you encounter these stories? And I assume it makes them more, you know, you want to write about them, you want to kind of, you know, invent the worlds around them, because they are something that I think all of us want to hang on to, right? Absolutely. And the people then spring out. But I think what you're
1: looking for as a writer, as a, as a writer of fiction, um, is you're looking for characters always. You're looking for incident. You want your sort of plot line. You want your, you know, your high point and your arc and all the rest of it. But you're also looking for people. And, um, and I think they, they then spring out to you very clearly. And you, you know, they really fire the imagination because I think of the hopeful element. Mm. Um, And I think that's also because of it. It feels like a rarity in amongst Mm. the darkness, and then it's this rare gem that you're looking at, glinting. there
0: Yes, yes, and I suppose as well in what you were saying about you know so much of what we we think we know about that period of history and what we maybe do know are. Or I, I can only speak for myself in this sense, but is this idea of sort of large masses of people that are not individualized, right? Like exactly. because you you think of these big groups, and actually what you're saying is fascinating. You're saying that you you know, it might be one woman's tiny act of resistance, but in that moment she leaps out at you as this kind of real, completely individual figure that you can then sort of project a kind of fictional life on. But but those are the the moments that kind of keep you going. Whereas actually what we've what a lot of history writing about this period does is not make you see individuals because it doesn't
1: work like that right exactly and also because of our visual images are, are so informed by yes. um, by images of the camps and where you yeah. then you're, you're you're looking at mass images of masses yeah, and um and it's you know historians have done a, a extraordinary jobs of looking at these photos of masses of people and trying to put names to faces you know Mm. and and that is very very important work and that's sort of what I feel uh, I want to contribute to in my fiction is that you make them people you don't make them just columns and also a lot of those images with a terrible irony are images produced by Germans um, wow. Our images of Auschwitz in particular are very much informed by um, images taken, video, uh, not video, <laughs> film and uh, photographs of of the camps and uh, of the, the Auschwitz um, camp complex and wow. at a particular time point as well. Um, I think it was Hungarian Jewish populations were um, evacuated en masse um, or transported en masse uh, to um, to Auschwitz and then gassed. Right at the end, before they started um, demolishing the gas chambers, because they were starting to worry about the Russian advance. And so there we we have this sort of huge masses of people being brought in and being uh, lined mm-hmm. up. And it's and it's a very particular time point in in the Auschwitz story, and also a very um, very much from the view of the perpetrators.
0: I think I hadn't even really realised that. I think I had been thinking about images of the camps after l- they had been liberated, as it were. But actually, yes, I suppose so much of the that I've seen other photos, obviously, and they weren't taken. They were taken before then, right? Yeah. Like and they were taken wow. by guards, and they were taken by SS, and they were, um, you know, so they are
1: the perpetrators' view. And also, I think when you you were talking about the, the images after the liberation. All those people that we see there, all all of those skeletal
0: bodies are individual humans.
1: Yeah, but they have yeah. become
0: de-individuated by the
1: starvation.
0: Of and, course. Well, you know, yeah. they're, I mean, that that's also the point of the camps, right? Is to yeah. do you, like to make them feel like they are they're not people anymore. They're not persons of any value. And so,
1: yeah, they're and all in actually... the same
0: in the same terrible garb, and they're yes.
1: all um, just bone, skin, and bone. And so yes. you don't yes. see human
0: anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course they go off and you know they have to build their lives afterwards, and you hear stories of that, but they, actually that that sort of point in time is a, a the haunting look on you know that some of the faces in those photos is incredibly hard to get out of one's mind i think mm. um gosh uh, it's very uh, sort of very very moving and very sort of thoughtful way to to start the episode um Let's shift things a little bit now and move into some of our main questions. I'm going to ask you about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table, please, Rachel.
1: Yes. So I've got two, which I'm reading at at the moment. um, and and One's fiction, one's nonfiction. Um, And the nonfiction is a memoir by Zhao Lu Go called Once Upon a Time in the East. Mm. um and she's a she's a fascinating writer so she's written fiction but this is a memoir so she's my age she's about 50 um and she grew up in china uh but came to britain and studied film here um and is a, also a filmmaker as well as a writer mm. but this is her um the story of her growing up and um it's wonderful she writes uh so clearly It's such a sort of clear and wonderful, a clear-eyed also, not just the prose, but clear-eyed, the way she sees. So she, um, her early years were in a tiny fishing village and she was brought up by her grandparents and her view of her, her grandmother, um, is very loving, but also just, um, in some ways quite harsh. She looks at her, she calls her a sort of bowed over, hunchback, sort of shrimp like creature. Because they're they, you know, they live in this fishing village. Yeah. And so all of her imagery is about, you know, crabs and um shrimps and all and eels and things like that that, you know, that the that the men of the village are catching. Um, um but she also and she describes her she's illiterate. She has bound feet. Um, and and she's beaten by the, the the grandfather, and 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 this girl Zhao Lu a girl sees this and thinks this is not me, mm. this is not what I want. So she all she knows is this fishing village, but she's already thinking beyond it. Um, and then she gets uh, her parents come back and are able to take her um, to live in the town or the you know it's a burgeoning city actually um and um and they they live in a you know in a factory compound her father is an artist a state artist her mother um works in a factory and um they live in a compound so then you also see um china under this sort of very organized communist principle yeah um that in you know that it infiltrates into your private life as well as your working life and so on um but there also you see the position of the girl so she she has an older brother the older brother has been with the parents the whole time the girl was the one that was you know sent to to live with the grandparents and even when she rejoins the family she is in the second position to the boy the boy gets the meat um you know at the table (laughs) the girl has to um, you know serve herself last really um, and, uh, and the girl is hungry all the time she talks about hunger, hunger but she's this fantastic again it's this sort of very individuated um, very individual, very full of life character mm. and full of there's a, sort of an angry um, undercurrent to her and that part of her hunger is anger um, and and it's a wonderful book It's wonderful, and you. uh, um, I guess for me, I know a little bit about China. I've read a few history books, but this is really um, seeing seeing China from the inside and from an individual's perspective, and a very unusual one.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating, and also that I I love stories about. I mean, you know, real life stories, but that idea that to be raised in such a sort of. A very strict environment in different ways and it it sounds like the other two the fishing village and then the kind of you know the the government compound or um in the city the factory life but to then recognize that your own you want something more out of that in the future right that you're going to you're still going to break free out of this and the ability to do that is, is always astonishing it is astonishing yeah it's amazing
1: and, uh, and that's what that's what really sort of drives the book i think is this mm. perspective she's a she's a in many ways a sort of lonely child but a child um who thinks for herself you know and seeks right. out people seeks out people to talk to um seeks out new perspectives and um yeah it's great it's great and also then i think there is for all there's a lot of relatability actually for all that it's mm. um sort of quite distant from a Western perspective, this idea of having a grandmother with bound feet, for example.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and the the idea of living in a communist-run compound where, you know, every family has two rooms, but all the doors are basically open and everything is, you know, communal, mm. quite literally. Um, but the position of women feels very relatable somehow. Really? Even though it's got okay. this very particular, you know, culturally chinese aspect like the banquet, yes. for example but the idea that the that the female is second to everything <laughs> um just you know it's very familiar isn't it yeah so you do there's there's a there's a despite the cultural differences or the the cultural specificities
0: yeah. it's also very relatable some echoes there fascinating um and what's the novel that you've been enjoying so the novel is
1: a Virago book, again, it's called The Red Bird Sings by Aoife Fitzpatrick. Um, and it's also, it's. I mean, I was partly drawn to it because it's based on um, a historical case, and I always really like that. Um, <laughs> but it's also a real page-turner. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, so it's it's based on a case in, um, in the US in the 1800s where... Um, a testimony so it was a murder trial hmm. um and um a testimony from a woman is allowed and not only that but a testimony which has uh, you know um uh a sort of seance aspect or a i'm trying to think, I'm finding the words this nice. needs to be edited but um somebody who has a sixth sense about the dead and um, so it's a testimony from the dead, actually, not just a woman's testimony but the, uh, the testimony of a dead woman um, is allowed in court for the first time um and um so it's a, it has a it's a it's a murder story it's also got supernatural elements um and I'm just at the bit i mean I know this is all to come, but I'm at the bit in um in the first sort of third or so where um the the woman in question is um, being courted um, by the man who will murder her, and we know this. This is not a spoiler. Ah, okay. Um, and uh, you know, we know this from the blurb, so we we're anticipating. Um, but he's—we know he's a wronger. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm uh, that bit. You know, <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really gripped
0: by this. Yeah. Are you often drawn to reading historical fiction? Is it something you like? Uh, you like to do.
1: Yeah, I do. I like the notion that this this really happened. Um, in some way or another. You know, I know mm. it's always embellished and um, you know, it's it's, take, it's inspired by true events rather than these are the true events. But I like that the weight of it somehow. It
0: mm-hmm. gives it a heft. Which That's is a lovely cool. way of thinking about it. Yeah. Something it gives it yeah, an added layer of um complexity or sort of mm-hmm. relevance I think and then to see what you can do with that or what an author can do with that mm-hmm. and how they can spin it into something that is then more than the reality is always fascinating to watch I think exactly I think I mean all fiction speaks all
1: good fiction anyway speaks to the world that we live in mm. um and to to human experience in some sort of some way that is really you know doesn't just make you cry or make you laugh but also makes you think and mm. um stays with you and then it doesn't have to be based on a real event to do that i don't know i'm sort of thinking um lucy barton for example
0: right yes you know
1: or any of elizabeth strout's really does, not necessarily based on historical events are they i can't think of anyone that is but if you know it's very much about um real people you feel the people mm. are real but then um if it's also based on a historical event then um you feel the directness of that speaking to real world concerns
0: yeah, beautifully put um next up then, Rachel, can you tell me about uh some a recent film, a podcast, a TV show that you've been watching? I think you've got a few couple of things you'd like to mention, haven't you yes, i um have i listened I say the podcast
1: let's go serious first. the podcast okay. um I listened to most recently. Uh, was one by Tortoise Media um, and by Polly Curtis in particular, journalist Polly Curtis, and it was um, about the Tavistock Clinic mm. and um, particularly the gender um, clinic at the Tavistock, which I believe has now been shut down. And or they're distributing the services um, across the country. So they were only based in London at the Tavistock Clinic, and now there are a number of clinics being opened um, for. Um, teenagers suffering from gender dysphoria and now that i've said that i know that's actually also a contentious word to use the suffering um uh but what i mean is uh, ch- uh, kids who are in distress
0: mm.
1: um because their gender identity doesn't accord with their biological assigned gender um and i thought it, it, it's a brilliant podcast because this is such uh Particularly for women, it's such a hot topic and a dangerous topic to speak about in public, um, and in a, a very emotive topic as well. Mm. Um, but this is this podcast approached it with such care and humanity and was looking always for the detail and uh not the sound bite right and not trying also to solve anything or to wrap anything up but just to look at experience and um it's it's got six parts i think and then there's also i uh, listen to it on youtube and then you can also listen there's a discussion which you can watch and listen to Um, where some of the contributors from the programme were invited and also members of the public were invited to discuss these. And again, um, that was an amazing way to wrap it up because, again, a very heated topic was dealt Mm. with very respectfully and I felt like this is, um, it felt like a way forward through it, basically. So to give an illustration of how they looked at the nuance. So they didn't, for example, one of the decisions that they made, and they're very transparent also, taught us Media, about how they approach things. So they said that one of the decisions they made was that they weren't going to talk about whether gender dysphoria is a thing or whether trans is a thing or not. They were just going to accept it. Yes, it is. For the purposes of this, we're going to say it is a thing. Um, And therefore, you didn't have... um, all those discussions about no, it, it's not real, or uh, it's not. Um, you know, you don't you don't go to those far edges where people are screaming. Yeah, yeah. It didn't get bogged down before it got started. Exactly, right. exactly. Okay. That um, what it was looking at were things like the whether the care at the Tavistock was gender affirmative, and what that, or what does that mean even? So um, kids presenting let's say a child assigned male at birth goes to the clinic and says i believe i'm a woman um in the popular imagination the idea is that the tavistock then says yes you are a woman of course you are a woman um and uh and that's it and there is no discussion of that and then puberty blockers get uh, prescribed and um and You know, the child is placed on this trajectory towards becoming a biological woman with surgery and all the rest of it. Um, And actually, the picture is much more complicated. So some clinicians would take an approach like that, let's say, or would, um, but they wouldn't even be thinking about it like that. They would be thinking about it as a discussion that we are having. And this is ongoing. And it's and it's a way of establishing trust with a young person, but it is not putting the cart before the horse,
0: mm.
1: and um, or yeah, the horse before the cart, and everything <laughs> running away. I'm getting yeah, yeah. my metaphors all wrong. <laughs> um, but, we know what you mean. Um, it's it's a discussion, and it's long term. And then you speak, and then they speak to somebody who had been under the care of the Tavistock, for example and their perception of of how these conversations went was not that it was affirmative but that it was questioning and that they found it very confronting actually and mm. that they um and I calling them they advisedly because over the course of um these discussions which took years and which this uh, individual in treatment found hugely frustrating they said, I had come to a decision, I had already had been on the waiting list for so long before I got there. And then I was confronted with conversations rather than just yes, here we have treatment for you. Um, That it was actually distressing for them. And it wasn't it didn't feel affirmative, actually. And, uh, but then, over the course of those years, they came to the conclusion, actually, that they were non-binary. Um, and that's an ind- It's not to say that that's what everybody will that will mm. happen to everybody. You know that this um, this treatment will be um, or this these conversations will lead to some kind of change. For some, it won't.
0: It strikes me that it's very rare to without getting into the kind of you know what side of the argument one is on or not but it strikes me that it's very rare to find or I don't often come across stories about this subject that actually really do focus on individuals like so much of it is the bigger picture of two sides Warring about a sort of ideology right rather than actually thinking of the reality of what it means to live in a body that you don't want to live in or you know what the process actually involves and like you say it sounds like that process is a very long ongoing one in which there are a multitude of endings to it it doesn't you know a doesn't always lead to b Um, and it seems to me as someone who you know knows very little about it, but these are more of the conversations that probably should be having. We should exactly, be have it. exactly that.
1: So it's it's always individual people. So you can mm-hmm. have a policy in a unit, can't you? But it's always individual people who are going to be um, working with that policy in a clinical setting with their mm-hmm. clients, and so they are they're going to have those conversations, and those conversations are real and with an individual. They're yes. not. They're not just a sort of a line on a bit of paper that says we do this this way. And, um, and then again, every individual who comes to that clinic in distress and needing help um, will have their own journey to be going on. Mm. And um, I mean, I think, you know, they also say in the, in the podcast, um, they uh, talk about the evidence base or lack of, you know there are critical voices in the podcast as well um about particularly about the assigning uh, the prescribing of um puberty blockers for example and the evidence base for how safe that is or not or you know what effect that has at all you know we talk about the, it being safe or not safe but actually um we just don't know yet anything about it really mm. not enough um but without them being prescribed to some people in the clear knowledge um, that we don't have um, yet an evidence base until we build that evidence base, um, people will need to take them um, and and see what happens. But as long as that's transparent, um, maybe that's the only way forward. Mm. And also, um, very few people get prescribed these drugs if you, um, you know, it's always in, it, 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 it's, you would, if you listened to many of the voices on Twitter, X, or, um,
0: you so know, assume, you assume they've been given out like candles. Absolutely. Right? But absolutely, the reality yeah. is that's, that it's not easy to access. It's them, very right?
1: difficult to access.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and partly because the evidence base is so small. So it should be, they should be very difficult to access, actually. Mm. Um, but it's not; it's not as if they're being given out willy nilly, and um, and no, without uh, being mindful of these things, mm. the, of the issues around them. It's um, it's just that you know it's all the shades of grey in this podcast, basically. And it's uh, and it's all you're listening to individual humans, and there is also space given for. I mean, Hadley Freeman is a contributor to it, for example, and and her take. You know it comes from her experience of having um anorexia and anorexia so seriously that she was she spent two of her teenage years in the hospital actually largely um and um she so she knows what it's like to live in a body that you don't want to be in basically or the body that you that you that distresses you um not from a gender perspective but you know she she has the insight that's her insight. And also she um, sees or she saw that for for um, children suffering from anorexia, um, there is a sort of a contagion aspect and that um, children spur each other on in these settings, in these hospital settings. Children uh, talk to each other about weight loss techniques, keeping your weight down, and, it's, and it's, it perpetuates itself. So that's her worry. Mm. That there is a contagion aspect, um, you know, that it's not um, that not every child who presents with gender dysphoria is actually trans, let's say. Um, and, and it was important that somebody like that is given voice, you know, somebody like ha- Hadley Freeman is given voice and is given. Um, You know, this is, again, a nuanced perspective and one that comes from an individual experience and comes from um, an angle that looks at teenage experience more generally Mm -hmm. and teenage distress. And um, it wasn't at all what you might imagine that conversation would go like. And, fascinating uh, you know, so I think it's a really valuable podcast. It's particularly valuable for anybody who has teens, anybody who works with teenagers um but just anybody who's even vaguely interested or who has um, who just wants a bit of light and less heat. Huh
0: and you're also going to mention a couple of slightly lighter topics but i think linked in with teens and some shows you've been watching with your your own children recently right
1: yes so i'm going to um sing the praises of rewatching and a um, fan of that here <laughs> so i with my husband we watched we rewatched the whole of the wire earlier on this year which was, it was such an amazing series such an amazing bit of writing actually mm. in the the Just the characters, each character, so well drawn.
0: And was it as good as you remembered from first time round? Oh,
1: yes, absolutely. It really was. And then also watching it again means that you're looking a bit more at characterisation and structure and so on and so forth. And so it was very interesting from a writing perspective. Um, Just the the shades of grey there again. So nobody yeah. is wholly good, nobody is wholly bad. Um, and uh, and there aren't really two sides. We're talking about the police and uh, drug dealers, but there aren't really two sides. Everybody blurs um, into, you know, this uh, city full of humans, Baltimore full of humans. Um, and uh, the other thing that we've been re-watching is Frasier. <laughs> and uh, we've been re-watching that with our kids. So our kids are 20 and 17. Um, and uh, both still living at home and studying and um we watch uh, an episode or two of frasier with our dinner each evening and they have do they like it they love it they absolutely wow. love it i okay. mean some of it is it's odd because time has moved on and so for example yeah. there was a um an episode recently where frasier chats up or gets chatted up by uh, a young uh shop assistant so he's early 40s were given to understand and the shop assistant was 23 or 22 and okay. um and my kids were sort of <laughs> <laughs> but they were horrified i mean they, they the sort of the idea of that's really changed it made me realize how much yeah. times have changed and that um predatory older people or older people dating younger people has a predatory tinge to it yeah, yeah,
0: it just has that now. It really way. has, it did it? Yeah.
1: yeah, and yeah. it made me also realise that my attitudes have changed. I did think, oh, yeah, Ooh, well. But it, the performances are so amazing mm. in Frasier. Niles is particularly the brother. in Frasier is particularly good, and there's just there's physical comedy. There's yeah. great wit, um, and it's just this. Uh, yeah these little it's 20 minutes or 25 minutes because we watch them without the advert breaks and so it's actually it's really short and sweet and wonderfully constructed and just so funny my kids really so that is
0: the perfect length isn't it for a lovely you know a couple of episodes in the evening and just yeah. the, the kind of and you're making me want to go back and watch it thinking of you know years ago and when, remember when it used to be on the Telly on whatever night it was, it was kind of was it like a Friday night? Telly, the Friends, Fraser, like that kind of thing, and everyone watched it. And some of those, I feel like I've watched some Friends more recently that hasn't maybe quite kind of lasted in the same way. But you're making me think I should go back to Fraser and give it another go. I think the characters are just great.
1: You know, I think maybe Friends is you know might sort of work for a time in your particular time in your life Mm. when you're maybe that age as well. I don't know. I never really watched Friends, so I don't know. But this is what I imagine, right? Um, whereas Fraser has got lots of different ages in it and um it's much more sort of based around it's much more silly actually than I'm yes it's,
0: i think i've forgotten maybe how much sort of physical comedy yeah. there is in it and actually the kind of and and the sort of play back and forth between the various family members the yeah. different generations you're right it's got something for everyone there really yeah. our shells will be back in just a moment Like me in a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today welcome back to our shelves I'm Lucy Schoes and I'm talking to Rachel Seifert about the glories of Frasier how everyone should go back and rewatch this uh 90s classic I suppose yeah. Is it 90s yeah. yeah it probably is isn't it um next up then Rachel can you tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way
1: yeah so I um I actually want to say I go back to the book that I was talking about earlier a little bit and just re um reinforce that as go and the experience of chinese women and the experience of western women maybe we're mm-hmm. not so different um but uh the one that i when i was sent these questions in advance the one that i that sprang to mind was audrey lord and um the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house they are very sort of slim it's an essay really
0: but i guess i read it um,
1: published in its own right, in this little sort of pamphlet-like book. Um, And just this idea that you're living in a structure, whether you know it or not, Um, and that um, you can't, there are limits to what you can do from within that structure. There are limits to change unless the structures of society change. And that, that was, for me, a real... Audre Lorde was a real eye-opener at university. Is that when you read it the first time? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I also read her poetry, and I think she's fantastic. I still teach some of her poems, so I work with young people. I work with an organisation called First Story. We place writers in secondary schools. So I'm a writer-in-residence in, in London secondary schools, and I use some of Audre Lorde's poetry. She writes The Teenage Experience extremely well. I mean she's a you know, she's this fantastic theoretical feminist, but she's also an incredible um
0: poet who who puts human experience on the page.
1: And do the students who teach,
0: do they like her work as well? Because it's something that resonates with them. Yeah.
1: There's yeah. one um which uh talks about you know a child a child listening to arguments behind a closed door.
0: Mm.
1: And um but knowing the child is more knowing um, than the adults would expect, and the the kids I teach really relate to that. Mm. And also I think it's the um, that she writes a, a black teenage experience, and look, many of the kids that I teach are black because I teach in London um, and um, and then she writes so it's a detail which which the kids that I teach have picked up on again and again, which she talks about having ashy knees so the um and then they know that she that the speaker is black or that the the voice in the poem is a black voice and i think there is that then there's that connection and it maybe yeah. is still unexpected to them that there would be a black voice on the page
0: and i think you mentioned um uh, when i was learning about your answers prior to the show sometimes I get told them early everyone um you said that East German feminists particularly had a, a big thing for Lord they really Lord's work particularly resonated with them I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that yes I mean I um there was a documentary
1: which made about this and I still haven't been really able to track it down it was coming so I live in South London it was coming to Peckham Plex just mm. at the time when the pandemic hit
0: Oh, and no. so it got
1: cancelled. Um,
0: oh, and then one of those ones that sort of fell through the cracks. Absolutely, then, then yeah. The, oh,
1: so I think yeah. the person, the documentary maker, maybe had a connection to the cinema in some way or another. Anyway, anybody out there, if you know about this documentary about Audrey Lord going to East Germany, please get in touch with Barack. And let me know how I can see it. Um, it really should be seen. I I only know a very little bit about this, but I find this fascinating. So Audrey Lord was one of those um, people who ended up having to go from America to find um, an audience, actually. Yeah. To find a properly receptive audience. So she, so Rennie Edo-Lodge published um, the book, you know, maybe 10 years ago now, Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race. And Audre Lorde um, made a similar kind of statement, but particularly to white feminists mm. um, in the 70s in America. Um, and she wrote an open letter to um, a particular white feminist, I think, um, which was basically pointing out that white women dominate and they don't listen to black voices and, it, and that this, this is exclusionary and you, you know that white feminism needs to look at itself or American feminism needs to look at itself and needs to be more inclusive. Um, and... She, she went to East Germany. So East Germany was then still East Germany. Yeah. I'm not sure if she was invited or how this came about. But there, because she was talking about structural change, because she was talking about wider change, um, she, she found listeners. And there are amazing pictures. There are amazing pictures of Audrey Lord sitting, this black woman sitting on a chair, and white women sitting cross-legged, enwrapped listening to wow. her.
0: looking up her and you
1: should think this this woman had to leave her home in order to find oh. an audience in order to find people who would really listen to what she had to say and because finally i think was Angela Angela Davis also had that experience Angela Davis came to Europe and and found a left-wing audience yeah, yeah. um and then Nina Simone also also a very political figure um but uh but maybe less obviously so, I guess, because yeah. she's a musician. But she also came away from America, didn't she? She followed James Baldwin. I mean, there are so many... So yeah, many. I was just
0: thinking because I feel like I have a, I I can think of quite a few um, Black American writers and artists and musicians who moved to France maybe at some point during yeah. the twentieth century and found a sort of creative freedom there and you know Baldwin obviously Simone all yeah. those but I think I know less about people going to Germany but then just as you start mentioning this I have I'm sure I have seen pictures of like Angela Davis there maybe Audrey Lord these women who and the idea that 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 as a as a kind of society these women because of the, the society in which they were living they were much more open to this and they could kind of see the resonance of it in the way that American society couldn't is endlessly interesting isn't it yeah I
1: mean American society was still very you know
0: th- that was the cold war wasn't it um, well yes there's that as well I mean not a, it's yeah. got all the kind of problems of uh, the sort of hangover of segregation and then you've also got the issues of like, the cold war on top of it so yeah exactly. so, yeah. so it's, a, it's a mix it's a it's a terrible sort of for,
1: for those people who were uh, wanting people to listen was a terrible yeah. mix of, um, of, of those histories, you know, the, the yeah, exactly. anti-communist and the racist history of
0: America sort of overlapping and that's interesting as well because we've had so many people recommend audrey lord on this season particularly of our show really? as well yes interesting i think i was just saying in the last episode we recorded there must be something in the air because so many people have picked her um for this exact question i think or, or the next one that's coming up and um and i think that but we haven't talked about this particular angle of her work so this is this is new at least <laughs> which is great and it's just lovely as well it's really nice that you know that people are um you know finding her work important in a way oh absolutely yeah and, you know yeah very yeah, um, and I think we're going to talk about her again now I the question tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire, I think you might have might want to talk about her some more or just reiterate how wonderful she is
1: um yeah, I think but I think what's wonderful is introducing her I sort of talk about uh, introducing Frasier to my kids mm. now I think about introducing Audrey Lord. To to kids here in London, that's also wonderful.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: that's one of the lovely things about being older, actually, is that there are that you have accrued things. You've accrued ideas, knowledge, different perspectives, and then you can share them with younger people. Mm. Um and I think that uh, you know, for for some of the girls, I was I was right in residence in a girls' school in Tulse Hill in South London for three years. And some of them found the uh, Audrey Lord a bit confronting because Audrey Lord was a lesbian. Um and so they would, you know, they'd go and find out more about her. I would introduce a poem, then they would go and find out more about her, and then they would come back and they would say, Oh miss, she was a lesbian. But then there would be um all those sorts of discussions that would go on in the classroom with other people saying, No, that's cool. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Um and, it, and it's amazing to see how these the same discussions happen, but have a different flavour. So I can remember that in my teenage years, the idea of being a lesbian was also er. Uh, and it took discussion for it to become not er. Uh, and this is still happening now. But the voices that say it's fine and it's good are louder. And it's not, that's what's changed, I think, over the years.
0: Mm. I love that idea about sort of the louder, a voice that is, I mean, obviously, Lords was a loud voice to begin with in that it was always um, important and being listened to. And sort of, but maybe over time, yes, it's been sort of magnified in different ways and that we're more, a lot of us at least, are maybe more receptive to listening to what she's got to say now, perhaps.
1: Yeah. And I think also it's, um, it's not necessarily then, there's more allyship as well. So I see that happening. It's not um, only girls who think they might be lesbian who are speaking up for lesbians, but it's also girls who are very secure in their heterosexual identity who say, yeah, what's wrong with it? Mm.
0: Well, finally today, uh, can you tell me about your golden apple? This is the Virago book that you would regularly recommend to others. Um, maybe one or two examples here. I think you had a couple you wanted to mention, right? I do have a couple. So I'm half German and half
1: Australian. And um, my dad was Australian. And he was the first person, actually, to give me a Virago book. So this was in the 1980s. And um, he was very excited because Virago, um, you know, the the lovely old classics in their green covers. Everyone's (laughs) favourite.
0: Everyone's
1: (laughs) favourite. Yeah. Um, They that there were Australian authors among them was very special to him. So he was an, an Australian expat, he had come to Europe, um, you know, decades before, um, but he still, you know, he, he, he still he, my dad actually suffered uh, from the colonial prejudice, let's say, so that mm-hmm. he was from the colonies. My dad was a white guy, you know, and and he worked at universities and so on. But he was um, of, uh, you know, blue collar heritage white collar working class let's say and um and he was australian so when he came to the uk he was very much viewed as this um you know viewed with disdain actually he Mm. really felt that he he worked at oxford university and he had um uh, students who would deliberately leave one chair too few in the room when um he came for a seminar so that he would have to say can somebody go and get a chair and then they would laugh amongst themselves Wow! This, yeah. Um. So you, yeah, the layers of sort of weird
0: class and. Um, yeah, and just the other mucky levels of colonialism, right? Like, um, yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> but um, what I think so. It was very important for him that Australian literature was taken seriously, and he really loved that Virago picked up people like Miles Franklin. So, and I loved my brilliant career so i read it when i was so the protagonist is about 16 um and i read it when i was about 16 and i absolutely loved that voice this a rebellious girl who looks at oh. her um her surroundings and finds them terribly parochial and can't wait to go to the big city um and it you know, has this very sardonic eye on her family and on her community so i, I would that's my one of my golden apples is um my Brilliant Career by um Miles Franklin. And then the other one is a more recent one. So Virago continues to find wonderful golden apples. Mm. And um this one is to honour my German side and it's um The Seventh Cross by Anna Ziegas. And um it's a it's a brilliant book written in nineteen thirty-eight, so in you know, at the really in the midst of Nazi yeah. oppression and um she uh, was uh, communist and Jewish, so she had double reason to be fearful of the Nazis. And she writes about uh, a prison breakout. So the Nazis established camps in Germany first, uh, places like Sachsenhausen and Dachau, um, and they were for um, for dissenting voices of all kinds um, in in Germany. Um, and Siegert writes about a prison breakout. So seven prisoners break out. From a camp near Mainz, which is where she um, lived and um, it's the sort of the story of one of them in particular, but one by one they're caught and those are the seven crosses and you um, uh, and you follow one in particular, mm. going from place to place trying to find safety in this very unsafe world um, of Germany in nineteen thirty eight and it's a brilliant book.
0: were you aware of it before virago did their recent reprint?
1: yeah so I read it in German um you know in my 20s I think I must have
0: been yeah I feel like it was one of the it was quite famous in Germany right I mean as in I don't know enough but she is quite famous but I feel like it's quite recently that we've because Virago published her over here and I think she was published in America recently as well in translation and so it's been kind of new to English language speakers but in Germany she's quite well known already right Absolutely, in Germany, she's
1: very well known. And Guntag Grass, for example, uh, cited her as one of the most important 20th century voices. You know, so mm. she has very um, she has pedigree in Germany. Um, but she was also interestingly, it was published in her. You know, at the time it was published, yeah, um, and published in America too. So she, it was picked up. She had to flee, and the manuscript. So one of the copies of the manuscript fell into the SS's hands. Um. Um, But then she managed to get one copy smuggled out. She went to Mexico and one copy was smuggled out and landed with the publisher in America. So it was published and and a film was made of it also during the Second World War with Spencer Tracy in the title role as one of the... Oh, yes, of course. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. So she had that sort of early recognition or recognition during her lifetime. But then she was um, post-war, she was uh, recognised again in Germany. I mean, she's really, she's a very, she's a big... She's part of the canon, post-war canon in Germany. But yes, um, having that and having that book in particular published um, in in New English translation and by Virago was really special to me, um, because it's you know it's it's such a it's such an important book um, for me for Germany, and then to have it available to to British readers now, and you know with the
0: with the apple on the spine. Um, exactly a really the mark of a, of a brilliant book right that that apple the green apple that everyone wants <laughs> exactly. well that's a perfect place to end it i think two brilliant recommendation recommendations there my brilliant career and uh the seventh cross thank you so much for joining us today rachel um i very much enjoyed chatting and thank you it's been a lovely morning Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Rachel Seaford, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.